Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Our guest today is Dr Colin Byrne, author of Battles on Screen, World War II Action Movies. Thank you for joining us today, Colin. Thank you, Tom. Let's start off by talking a bit about Where Eagles Dare. What is it that you like so much about this film? Where Eagles Dare is a hugely enjoyable action film and spy thriller, which is not dated at all. The film has a great musical score, excellent special effects, wonderful photography, and some marvellous action sequences. It's also considerably better than Alistair MacLean's novelisation. Where Eagles Dare differs from MacLean's other works, as it originally started off as an original screenplay commissioned by film producer Elliot Kastner in 1965. At that point, Alistair MacLean had retired from writing, as his book that he'd last written had been Ice Station Zebra, which was published in 1963. But he was persuaded to come out of retirement to write a screenplay, originally titled Schloss Adler, meaning Eagle Castle. Elliot Kastner came up with a more dramatic title, Where Eagles Dare, by using a quote from Shakespeare's Richard III, Where Eagles Dare to Perch. In Maclean's original screenplay, a whole hour of screen time elapses before the commando team gets to Germany, but the film opens with the soldiers about to parachute from a German Junkers U-52 trimotor and then shows what happened before this by means of a brief flashback, which I think is a brilliant directorial touch. Incidentally, the Junkers U-52, which appears in this scene, was supplied by the Swiss Air Force, which operated three of these planes until 1981. And it was this very same aircraft, the one used in the film, which tragically crashed in the Swiss Alps on 4th August this year. The film is best remembered for its musical score by Ron Goodwin, the cable car fight sequences, and of course the catchphrase Broadsword Calling Danny Boy, which has even turned up in an episode of Doctor Who. The two main stars were Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. Burton was an alcoholic and a heavy smoker and was very unfit. As a result, many of his scenes, especially action scenes, were shot by doubles, particularly the stuntman Alf Joint, who closely resembled Burton. If you've ever seen the film Goldfinger, then you will remember Alf Joint, as he played the Mexican thug, who is thrown into a bath and then electrocuted by Bond in the pre-credit sequence. Burton's alcoholism was to prove a problem during production. In one scene, his character was supposed to climb up the side of the castle. As the actor was so drunk, they had to move him up the side of the building using a moving platform. One of Burton's co-stars, the Scottish actress Mary Ewer, who played Agent Mary Ellison, was also an alcoholic, and many of her scenes were performed by stuntwoman Gillian Aldman. And of course, Alistair MacLean is also well known for writing The Guns of Navarone, which was made into a film in 1961, and also which features in your book. Would you like to say a bit more about that? 
The book The Guns of Navarone was published in 1957 as a follow-up to Maclean's first novel HMS Ulysses and by 1959 plans were made to turn it into a film. Originally it was intended to film it entirely in the UK but no suitable locations could be found. Eventually the producers decided to make it in Cyprus which at that time was still a British colony. This would have been an ideal location as the climate was wonderful with sunshine most days and British forces on the island could play the part of German troops and provide all the necessary equipment such as ships, tanks, guns and aircraft. Unfortunately the late 50s were a turbulent time in that island's history as there was a separatist movement, Ioka, which wanted both union with Greece and independence from Britain. And the producers of the film were afraid that British troops would be unable to participate in the film as they would be required to restore order. Yugoslavia was therefore considered as a possible location but eventually the Greek island of Rhodes was chosen for filming and the Greek government supplied hundreds of troops and various items of equipment including six destroyers, a patrol boat, M24 light tanks, half-tracks, scout cars and artillery pieces. The original director was Alexander McKendrick but he subsequently injured his back and was replaced by J. Lee Thompson who was best known for directing Ice Cold in Alex. The lead role of Captain Mallory was played by Gregory Peck. Originally it had been hoped to cast William Holden in the role of Mallory but he turned down the role as he thought it was too similar to the part he'd recently played in Bridge Over the River Kwai. The explosives expert Corporal Mira was to have been played by Kenneth Moore but in the end the part was given to David Niven. The screenplay was by Carol Foreman who at that time had been blacklisted by the Hollywood establishment as he had once been a member of the Communist Party. Foreman's screenplay was intended to turn the film into an anti-war movie as it contained many speeches on the futility of war but it was regarded as an action movie by both critics and the general public. This was something which upset Foreman. His next film The Victors was most definitely an anti-war movie but it bombed at the box office. The climax of the guns of Navarone involved a scene in which two giant guns are destroyed by explosives. The gun caves and the weapons were created full size on the back lot at Shipperton Studios. This scene proved dangerous to film and David Niven contracted septicemia after standing in stagnant water all day. He spent some weeks in hospital and nearly died but eventually recovered well enough to complete his scenes. Originally a sequel called After Navarone was to be made in the 60s featuring some of the original cast members but there were various delays and as a result Force 10 from Navarone as it was eventually called was not released until December 1978 
It proved to be a critical and commercial failure, although it did feature a fine score by Ron Goodwin, the very last he did for a major film. One thing I, I did notice was that you've devoted an entire chapter to the 1965 movie Battle of the Bulge, a film which was pretty much reviled by the critics at the time of the release. What is it that you like so much about this film? It's certainly not the most accurate film to be made about the Battle of the Bulge, but it is hugely entertaining with wonderful photography, a great cast, a stirring musical score, finely staged action sequences and good special effects. It also remains the only World War II movie to have been made in the ultra-widescreen Cinerama process. The film has been heavily criticised for its use of out-of-period equipment and Spanish locations which look nothing like the Ardennes in December 1944. For example, Korean War era American-made M47 Patton tanks were used to portray King Taggers, while M24 Chaffee light tanks represented American Shermans. Some scenes towards the end of the movie were also shot in blazing summer sunshine, rather than winter snowscapes. But the film was actually no more inaccurate than the highly acclaimed 1970 production Patton, which used the very same vehicles and locations as Battle of the Bulge. One of the problems that Warner Brothers had was that their film was competing with a rival Columbia production called The Battle of the Bulge. There was a lawsuit, and one consequence of this was that the names of most historical figures could not be used in the Warner Brothers films, making it less accurate. The main German tank commander in the film was Colonel Martin Hessler, played by Robert Shaw. He was originally to have been the real-life SS man Joachim Piper, but following legal threats, the character's name was changed and he was made a member of the German army, not the SS. In reality, Joachim Piper had been convicted of war crimes, particularly the Malmody massacre depicted in the film, and had spent 10 years in prison, but he was still able to prevent the filmmakers from mentioning his name on screen. Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan is regarded by many critics as being the greatest war movie ever made, at least in modern times. Would you agree with that assessment? I think Saving Private Ryan is a very good war movie, and Spielberg is an excellent director, but I wouldn't say it was the best war movie ever. Personally, I prefer Richard Attenborough's 1977 epic A Bridge Too Far. Saving Private Ryan's fame comes largely from the first 25 minutes of the film, which depicts the landings at Omaha Beach in great detail. This was probably the most realistic depiction of battle that cinema audiences had witnessed up to that point. For example, real amputees were used in scenes where soldiers had their limbs blown off. Veterans of Omaha Beach praised the filmmakers for the authenticity of these scenes, especially the sounds of battle. One bit of Hollywood science, though, 
was the scene in which soldiers are hit by machine gun fire, even though they are underwater. This has been shown to be inaccurate, as bullets slow down considerably when they travel below the surface. Overall, the films comes over as being very sentimental, like most of Spielberg's films. And this is one reason some people like William Goldman, the writer of the screenplay of A Bridge Too Far, have criticised it. Of course, Saving Private Ryan wasn't the first film to be made about the Normandy landings. Perhaps the best-known picture about D-Day would be The Longest Day. Could you say a bit more about that production? The Longest Day was one of the last movies to be made in black and white. There were two reasons for this. One was it enabled the use of some archive footage. Also, the black and white photography helped to hide the fact that many of the actors were quite old. For example, Robert Ryan, who played General Gavin, was 51 when he made the film. In real life, General Gavin was 37 at the time of D-Day. At one point, the filmmakers considered asking Dwight D. Eisenhower to play himself in the film. But it proved impossible to make him look like his younger self. In the end, the role was played by Henry Grace, who was a film set decorator, not an actor, but looked very like Eisenhower. The film was made entirely in mainland France and Corsica in the summer of 1961. To save in costs, some of the landing scenes were actually footage of the US Navy's Sixth Fleet carrying out amphibious landing exercises off Corsica. The US Navy had to move their aircraft carriers out of shot as no aircraft carriers were used in the real D-Day landings. The film employed five directors and 50 main stars. These included a young Sean Connery, who appears as Private Flanagan. Just after shooting his scenes on the film, Connery flew to Jamaica to make Dr No. The movie was not entirely accurate though. In 1944, the principal Allied paratroop aircraft was the Douglas C-47 Dakota. No Dakotas appear in The Longest Day and the paratroop dropping scenes were achieved using rather unconvincing miniatures of Avro Lancaster bombers, a type which was never used for this purpose. Also, the dummy paratroopers, known as Ruperts, which appeared in the film, were depicted as highly detailed representations of soldiers, a sort of king-sized action man doll. In reality, the Ruperts were nothing more than simple canvas bags. Much of the equipment used in the film was supplied by the French army, which in 1961 was still using World War II American vehicles such as M3 half-tracks and Sherman tanks. The French Hotchkiss Company also manufactured the American Willys MB Jeep until the early 1970s, and the Jeeps which appeared in Saving Private Ryan in 1998 were all ex-French Army Hotchkiss Jeeps.
You've also included a chapter on Kelly's Heroes, which was a film that wasn't entirely serious. Why is it that you like this one so much? Kelly's Heroes has an interesting place in film history. It was scripted by Troy Kennedy Martin, who was actually Scottish, as he was born in Rothsey. Kennedy Martin had scripted a few films, but was best known for his TV work, which included Zed Cars, The Sweeney and Age of Darkness. His best-known film work was the script for the original 1969 version of The Italian Job, which starred Michael Caine. And his line, You were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off, was recently voted the best line in movie history. The director of Kelly's Heroes was Brian G. Hutton, a former actor who only directed a few films and then went into real estate. Hutton had previously directed Where Eagles Dare and directed Kelly's Heroes following a recommendation from star Clint Eastwood who enjoyed working with him. The plot of Kelly's Heroes, which was originally titled The Warriors, involved a group of American soldiers carrying out a bank heist to steal gold bars behind enemy lines in France in the late summer of 1944. It can be thought of as a war movie, an anti-war movie, an action movie, a comedy, a black comedy, or a heist movie. It is this blending of genres which makes it unique. And it works, even though about 20 minutes of footage was excised by studio executives to shorten its running time. Ironically, it is more authentic weapons and equipment than the supposedly accurate biopic pattern which came out the same year. For example, the film features several genuine Sherman tanks. In one shot, 11 working Shermans can be seen, which is more than were used in A Bridge Too Far. There were also what appeared to be three German Tiger I tanks. In fact, they were working replicas built over Soviet-made T-34-85 tanks, which had originally been constructed for the Yugoslavian movie The Battle of Neretva. The film was made entirely on location in Yugoslavia in the summer of 1969, and the main reason for this was that the Yugoslavian army still used a lot of World War II equipment, including jeeps, Sherman tanks and M5 half-tracks. The film features some of the best tank scenes in the history of the movies. About halfway through, there's an exciting action sequence in which three Shermans get into a German marshalling yard and wreak havoc with their main guns and machine guns. And the climax of the movie is a scene in which a single Sherman attempts to knock out three Tigers by hitting them at point-blank range in the rear. In fact, this is a technical error, as Shermans armed with a later 76mm M1 gun could pierce even the frontal armour of a Tiger at the ranges shown in the film. The best character in the film, though, is the tank commander, Oddball played by Canadian actor Donald Sutherland. With his long hair and hippie mannerisms, he seems to belong in 1967 San Francisco, 
rather than 1944 France. And each catchphrase, don't hit me with these negative waves, still makes me chuckle. The Brad Pitt movie Fury, which was released in 2014, contains a scene which was possibly inspired by Kelly's Heroes. Would you like to elaborate on that a bit? The climax of the movie Fury is a scene in which four Sherman tanks take on a single tiger. The tiger used in this scene was real, not a replica, and was the sole running Tiger 1 in the world. Tiger 131, which was captured by British forces in Tunisia in 1943 and supplied to the film company by the Tank Museum at Bovingdon in Dorset. Eventually, Brad Pitt's character, War Daddy, manages to get behind the Tiger and puts two shells into its engine compartment at the rear. As with Kelly's Heroes, the scene has been heavily criticised because War Daddy's tank has an M1 76mm gun which could have knocked out the Tiger with a shot through the frontal armour plate. One of the most expensive war films ever made was the 1977 epic A Bridge Too Far. How would you rate this film and what is it about it particularly that you admire? Personally, I think it is one of the greatest war movies ever made. Possibly the greatest. It's very accurate, as a great effort was made to get all the details right. For example, the producers scoured Europe looking for genuine Sherman tanks. They couldn't find all that many that were in running order. So what they did was they took a plaster cast of one, a Firefly variant, from which they made fiberglass copies. These fiberglass shells were then mounted on Land Rovers and used in the background of many shots. Eleven genuine Douglas C-47 Dakotas were also sourced for use in the parachute dropping scenes, which were done for real, using men of the British Parachute Regiment. The resulting footage was the greatest parachute dropping scene in the history of the movies. Over 100 genuine vintage military vehicles were acquired from various sources for use in the film and a large fleet of replica German armoured vehicles were specially built for the film as very few original examples existed in running order in 1976. For example, a German SD KFZ 251 half-track was created by meeting the front end of a British Commer van with the tracks and chassis of a British Universal Carrier. Several replica German armoured cars were also built and four Leopard 1 tanks supplied by the Dutch Army were modified to resemble Panther tanks. The resulting film was very authentic but it didn't do too well at the all-important American box office for a number of reasons. First of all, it was a film about a defeat. Secondly, much of it dealt with British military actions which don't seem to interest American audiences. Thirdly, it had a rather bleak tone and ended on a pessimistic note, something which probably didn't go down too well with American audiences who like upbeat endings. Another classic war film that you mention in your book is The Bridge at Remagen. 
The story of the problems during shooting would probably make a film in and of itself. Would you like to say a bit more about that? The bridge at Remagen was filmed in Czechoslovakia in the summer of 1968 using the Davy Bridge, which was very similar to the Ludendorff Bridge on the Rhine at Remagen. Consideration had been given to filming at Remagen itself, but was ruled out for two reasons. First of all, the West German government was afraid that filming would disrupt important river traffic on the Rhine. Secondly, the Ludendorff Bridge had been destroyed at the end of the war and would have to have been rebuilt for the film. Unfortunately, after just two months filming, shooting was disrupted by the real-life invasion of Czechoslovakia by Russian forces in August 1968. The Soviets were upset at the fact that the Czechs had a new leader, Dubček, who promised new reforms and perhaps the abolition of communism itself and the introduction of democracy. Shooting on the film had to stop, particularly as the Russians claimed that the tanks and vehicles imported into the country by the film company were part of a CIA plot to invade Czechoslovakia. In fact, most of the American military vehicles used in the film, including M24 tanks, M8 armoured cars, M3 half-tracks and jeeps, plus thousands of rifles, were supplied by the Austrian army. Eventually, the Russians allowed further shooting to be completed in Czechoslovakia, although many scenes had to be filmed in Hamburg and in Italy, where a replica bridge had to be built. Despite all these problems, the film was eventually finished and premiered in the summer of 1969 to good reviews. In your book, you've also included a bonus chapter on neglected World War II cinema classics. And in that section, I see that you mentioned the 1943 Humphrey Bogart movie Sahara. What is it about that particular film that you wanted to include in your book? I think Sahara is one of the basic film plots. A group of Allied soldiers and a single tank are besieged in a fort in the middle of the desert. Despite being short of water and ammunition, and few in number, they hold out against superior German forces until reinforcements arrive. The film was based on Patrol, a story by Philip MacDonald, which was itself inspired by a Soviet film, The Thirteen, which was made in 1936. Later, the plotline was used in a 1953 western called The Last of the Comanches, which starred Broderick Crawford. In 1995, Sahara was itself remade as a made-for-television movie starring James Belushi as the tank commander, Sergeant Joe Gunn. This version of Sahara was a scene-for-scene -scene remake which was shot in Australia. The real star of both versions of Sahara, though, was the American tank, an M3 Lee. Powered by an air-cooled right radial engine, the M3 had a rather unusual design, as it two main guns, a 37mm gun in a small rotating turret atop the hull, and a 75mm weapon in a side sponson on the right-hand side of the tank.
The British version of this tank was known as the Grant and was used by the British 8th Army for a few months from May 1942 onwards until it was the, replaced by the more effective Sherman. In 1943 the British film industry produced their own version of Sahara called Nine Men which starred a young Gordon Jackson. As I said Sahara has one of the basic film plots and may even be considered one of the inspirations behind the 1986 film Aliens. You also mentioned the 1967 Desert Warfare movie Tobruk. What was it about this particular film that made you want to include it? In my opinion Tobruk is a very underrated film. It was produced by the Corman Company who were best known for low budget horror movies. The plot involved a detachment of German Jews known as the Special Interrogation Group who were actually working for the Allies escorting a group of British commanders posing as prisoners of war across the western desert into the port town of Tobruk where they planned to blow up German gun emplacements and an important fuel dump. Although the plot may seem far-fetched, it was based on the real-life Operation Agreement on 13 September 1942, when Allied commanders attacked Tobruk and Barsi. The real-life mission was much less successful than the version depicted on screen, as little damage was done to enemy installations and most of the commanders were killed or captured. In addition, three Royal Navy warships were sunk by coastal gun batteries. The 1967 film is best known for its very exciting action sequences. In one scene, the commanders attack a German gun emplacement and use a flamethrower to torch the occupants, an idea which reappears in Saving Private Ryan. In another scene, Rock Hudson's character Major Craig and his colleagues steal a German tank and use it to blow up German fuel bunkers, an idea which I must admit I pinched for a key scene in my recent novel, Operation Archer. And there is in fact a connection between Tobruk and the 1971 Richard Burton movie Raid on Rommel. Would you like to say a little bit more about that? Raid on Rommel was a low-budget movie made in New Mexico, which was directed by Henry Hathaway, who is best known for his westerns. It relied heavily on footage from the 1967 production Tobruk and had essentially the same plot as it involved a commando raid on Tobruk by soldiers posing as Allied prisoners of war. In this respect, it was similar to the 1968 Oakman Productions film Mosquito Squadron, which reused a lot of footage from 633 Squadron and was filmed at some of the same locations. However, whereas Mosquito Squadron was a reasonably entertaining movie, Raid and Rommel was a disaster. Where Eagles Dare was probably Richard Burton's best movie, but Raid and Rommel was his worst. An absolute stinker. Well, Colin, it's fair to say that your book, Battles on Screen, 
is definitely one which covers many different aspects of warfare on land and also occasionally on sea and by air. It was a book that certainly I've enjoyed and it's one that is certainly has no shortage of ambition uh, when it comes to detailing some of the classics of the genre on the big screen. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Battles on Screen is available to buy, published by Extremist Publishing, from all good independent booksellers and online retailers worldwide. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in again soon.